Well, good morning once again. And uh, just as a reminder, we are looking at the, the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. We don't have too much further left in our study. We are in chapter 9 right now, and we'll finish that up this week. Uh, we'll look at chapter 10 uh, and 11 over the coming weeks, uh, and then we'll finish our series. And just as a reminder, this study is a, is a, is a study in the foundations of our faith. And one of the major pieces or blocks that we've been looking at is the sort of introduction of sin. Last week we touched on this reminder uh, when, when God said of this new world that he created after the flood and Noah and his family were leaving the ark and the Lord was promising never again to flood the earth. He said these things, nevertheless, even though they're evil from their youth, the problem of sin, of wickedness, uh, continued. The fallenness of mankind continues. And in this section of our text this morning, we're going to be looking at Noah's sin and his children's sin. And we're reminded, if you will, of the fall and how it impacts all of us every day. Uh, so with that, why don't we go and look at uh, turn to God's Word. We're going to be looking at chapter 9. We're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Uh, this is chapter 9 of Genesis, 18 to the end of the chapter. You can follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. Hear God's word. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And he died. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn and study your word, and as we see this foundational truth that in Adam all are fallen, all have sinned, all are covered with shame apart from your grace. As we look at this, help us to see the covering that you provide. You cover us and clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. Help us to wonder at that truth, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the many common dreams that people have, and I'm no dream expert, but one that I think that most of us have had or have heard others have is the one of having a dream of going to school or going to work without your pants on, right? You have that 
that feeling of anxiety as you come to realize I'm at work and everybody can see me and I'm exposed. And like I said, I'm no dream expert. I don't pretend to be an interpreter of dreams. In fact, I hardly remember my own dreams. But I think this is common, and I think it usually points uh, to that dreamer's stress and anxiety, right? They have some stress and anxiety about whatever it is uh, they're about to do, some important thing that's upcoming. But the question is, why the missing clothes? Why is that the piece that is sort of embedded in these dreams? Well, I don't know exactly why our dreams are like that, but clothes cover us up, right? That's what they do. They cover us up. Um, yes, to keep us warm, but also uh, to cover our bodies, right? We don't walk around naked. Uh, there is anxiety about the idea of us being exposed, right? Of, of uh, being uncovered, of people seeing us for who we are. And not, not really our physical bodies per se, though there's some of that, but more it's about our weaknesses, right? Our inabilities, um, our sin. So we dream about it. Anyway, that's the depth of my dream interpretation. Take, take it for what you will. But there's something to this idea of nakedness and shame. We get this at the beginning of the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and they were unashamed before the Lord and they were able to walk with the Lord and with one another and they had no sense of guilt, no sense of, of, of that sort of self-conscious uh, realization of their own frailty and weakness. But as soon as they took the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of uh, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate it, they realized that they were naked, and they felt that shame. There's a connection there, right? This very first act of Adam and Eve after the fall to cover themselves points to this. They, they, put, they took leaves and sewed them together and hid themselves from one another and from God. And this morning, we'll see once again how Noah sins and his nakedness is exposed and how his son Ham looks on it. This was such a big deal that Noah curses him for it. But we'll also see how Shem and Japheth take a covering. They put a cloak and a garment and they walk backwards to their father and they cover his nakedness and his shame. And this morning, as we look at the text, I want us to consider the hope that we have of a covering for our shame. What Shem and Japheth do, what they do for Noah, for their father, is an act of mercy and kindness. To have our shame covered is an act of mercy and kindness. And this is what the Lord Jesus does for us. And we'll look at that in Christ, he covers, God covers our shame. And to explore this hope that the Lord covers our shame, I want to look at this passage in three parts. The first is that sin and shame go hand in hand. The second is that we ought not to glory in shame, particularly the shame of others. We ought not to go in glory in that. And then finally, that there is mercy in being covered, in our shame being covered. But first, 
sin and shame go hand in hand. Now, this may, may seem like such an obvious truth that it, doesn't, it needs little expounding. When we do something wrong, we often try to cover it up. We hide it. We feel embarrassed about it for the most part, right? Until we don't. Until we become blind to our sin, to our shame. We, we do it so frequently. That is the sin, whatever it is that we're guilty of, that all of a sudden we don't feel shame about it. In fact, you know, as we look at the world around us, the whole goal is to get rid of shame by calling evil good, right? Is to take what should cause shame and say, don't feel shame about that. Do what you want to do. Live how you want to live. Well, our text begins with a clean world as we've looked at. Noah and his sons go forth from the ark after the flood. And one of the things that strike us immediately in the text is this little tagline. It says, The sons of Noah who went out from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Now, if we're familiar with the rest of the story going forward in Scripture, this word Canaan should cause us to remember. Canaan, oh, that's the place of God's promise. That's the land of promise. That's where Abraham is promised, and he goes that's where Moses and the Israelites leave Egypt and they go and they're, they're now, probably at the first reading of this text, on their way or en route or on the edge of the land of Canaan. And so now when they hear these words, and Ham was the father of Canaan, it would have been striking. In fact, for, I think for the Israelites in particular, it would have been shocking why? Well, who were the Canaanites, right? Who were the Canaanites? The Canaanites were the worst. They were the worst people. In fact, we read at the beginning of, of Exodus that their, their evil had filled up to the point where God was going to bring judgment on them. They were the ones who, were the, who, were, who God said to the Israelites, when you conquer the land, when you go into the land, you're to wipe them out because of their sin. They become the arm of God's justice, Israelites against Canaan. So when you read this little tagline, maybe it seems like nothing, but you know, here's the brand new humanity. Noah and his sons and their wives, they leave the ark and they, they come on to this fresh new world. All of the unrighteousness and wickedness have been washed away and immediately we're faced with this, but Ham's the father of Canaan. It was a... It's a trigger word, if you will, for, for the Israelites. Canaanites? Really? And it should cause the reader, the hearer of this word, to say there's something rotten in Denmark. Right? That, that old tagline from Hamlet and Shakespeare. Something stinks. Well, we've already noted, and the text is reminding us, that though the flood wiped the wicked off the earth, wickedness still remains. Now Noah, like Adam, is a man of the soil. And I think it's interesting that he plants a vineyard. And I think it may be tempting for us to think that that in itself, there's Noah's sin. If he had never planted a vineyard, none of this would have happened. I don't, I don't think that's the sin of Noah. He certainly sins here. But sometimes we think, well, 
you know, if you plant a vineyard, vineyards produce grapes, grapes produce wine, wine leads to drunkenness, and drunkenness is a sin. And we'll see this unfold. This is exactly what happens. But in his planting of the vineyard, in his actual planting of the vineyard, I don't believe is a sign of his sin, but rather of God's blessing. Throughout Scripture, when we see this idea of vineyard, uh, we see this idea of grapes, we see this sort of picture of fruitfulness, it's a sign of God's blessing. When the people go into the land, I've mentioned this before, when they go into the land of promise, they come back, the spies go in, they come back carrying this grapes loaded, uh, you know, over, overflowing uh, vines full of grapes. And it was a sign of this is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the sign of God's bounty and blessing. This is a land that God is giving to us. And so when it says that Noah planted a vineyard, I think we ought to read that and say, God is blessing Noah and his family. He's giving to them good things. Yet, as is the case with all of us, we often take God's blessing and then we twist it for our own selves. Noah sinned, the text says, that he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Rather than honor God and give thanks to God, he indulged himself and became drunk. And we know uh, throughout Scripture, drunkenness is viewed as a sin. But more than being drunk, he is uncovered. He is naked. Yes, kids, I said the word naked. Let's go say it a few more times. Makes you laugh or giggle, partly because of that feeling of uncomfortableness that we have. Now, again, our minds go back to that story of Adam and Eve in the garden who also ate, right? They didn't drink, but they ate. They ate and they sinned. They took what was good. They had all the blessings of God in the garden. They had every tree and every fruit, but they said, it's not enough. And they took the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate. And now their nakedness was exposed. Their sin came to light. So it is here with Noah. The blessing of the fruit of the vine and the wine for Noah was not enough. And he went beyond what was right and good. I think it's pretty typical. This is very typical of us. We have good things. And we have them. And God blesses us with them. And we say, it's not enough. I want more. I said at the beginning of this whole point that sin and shame go hand in hand, but that we don't often recognize our sin and so we don't feel ashamed. I think drunkenness is illustrative of this, right? By its very nature, when you get drunk, you lose perspective, you lose control, you become uninhibited and willing to do things that you would otherwise never do when you were sober. It's no wonder that Noah lay naked in his tent. He's probably passed out completely unaware that his shame is being exposed. And while I think Noah was, in fact, literally naked, that was what was going on, it also pointed out his sinfulness. Nakedness and shame, they're they're interconnected. The Scripture is trying to tell us something. When Noah sins, here's a righteous man. Everything he had done up to that point had been 
yes and amen to the word of God. Everything he had done was in obedience to God. And now it's as if he's done this thing and it's like, oh yeah, he's still like us. He's a sinner. And I don't think he was aware of his nakedness, of his shame. Sin in general has a way of blinding us to our shame, especially when we indulge it for some time. We start to lose sight of the fact that it is sin. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, gossip is an extraordinarily destructive thing in the life of a church, really in the, in, in the world. It, it just destroys relationships, right? And oftentimes, we'll get together with a friend and we'll, we'll say something like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? I really shouldn't tell you this, but... <laughs> That's what we do, right? Uh, and then we tell that thing, and then we're like, yeah, that wasn't a good idea. I shouldn't have told you that. It really was not, a, was not right of me to share that with you. I, I apologize. We shouldn't talk about this anymore. But then maybe the next time we go to that friend and, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They did it again. Oh, bless their soul. I, I know they didn't mean it. And then over time, we go back to that friend, and we start, every time we get together now, we're talking about that other person. Can you believe it? They did it again. I get, I'm so tired of this. Can you believe it? Oh, my goodness. They're such a pain. Whatever it is that they're doing. And we get so comfortable in this gossip that we don't even recognize it anymore for what it is. We're not ashamed by it. And then so soon that becomes a pattern of our relationships. Our relationships are marked by us talking about other people. In the life of a church, it's extraordinarily destructive. We fail to see the shame. It fades away and we get comfortable in our sin. That's just one sin. I picked one sin. You name a sin, you can get comfortable with it. And as I've already mentioned, I think the culture also calls us and encourages us to ignore shame. In fact, fact, I think it assumes that shame itself is the problem, not the sin. Right? You should not feel ashamed for the things that you do. Now, I realize, I want to stop here. I want to pause and give us a caveat. I realize that we can have shame for things that are not sinful. We can be ashamed for things that are just a part of who we are. We can be ashamed about our bodies or our personalities. We can fail to see how God has made us in His image and how God has loved us. And that's not what I'm talking about. There can be false shame, right? There can be a kind of shame that, that, is, that is actually destructive. But that's not what I'm talking about. That is true. But it's also true that shame is an important part of our conscience that God uses to bring us to repentance. When we sin, we ought to feel a sense of guilt and shame. Of course, what we do with that shame matters, right? What we do with it matters. Running and hiding like Adam and Eve is not the answer. To try to cover it up and run and see if we can get away from God and act like that shame doesn't exist or put it under the rug or do something with it. That's not what we ought to do with our shame. Pretending as if a sin is not a sin. That shame is the guilty feeling, the feeling that we have uh, over that thing is the problem and not the sin itself uh, is not the answer. Rather, taking our sin and shame and confessing it to the Lord Jesus 
going to him and saying, Lord, my guilt and my shame is in front of me. Lord, have mercy on me. Be gracious to me and cover me with your grace. We'll come back to the covering in a minute. It's sort of a, t- a tease there, but, but what we do with our shame matters. And how we live in light of the gospel matters, and we'll come to that at the end. But for now, I want us to realize that when we sin, that feeling of guilt and shame for that sin, when we have those feelings, we ought not to ignore them. We ought not to hide them. We ought not to pretend as if sin doesn't exist. But that feeling is God's grace to you that you would turn in repentance to Him. Sin and shame go hand in hand. But what about when someone else sins and their shame is exposed? How ought you to respond? When someone else around you sins, a friend, an acquaintance, somebody you don't even know but you have observed, how do you respond? Well, this is my second point. Don't glory in the shame. Don't glory in the shame. The text says that Ham saw his father's nakedness. Now, I just have to say that if you go and you read all that is written on this topic, uh, you'll be maybe a bit shocked by some of the interpretation. Um, And I'll just point out that there are are some interpreters that believe that when when Ham saw his father's nakedness, that there was much more to the seeing than the words state, that it's, in fact, euphemistic, Uh, and and not for bad reasons either. In Scripture, uh, uncovering one's shame or uncovering one's nakedness, we go to the book of Leviticus, um, is used euphemistically to talk about inappropriate relationships. Um, I'll I'll leave it at that and let you kind of figure this out as as you look into it. Um, but it's a euphemism for something that is illicit. You can go and look at Leviticus chapter 18. So some have speculated that Noah's son Ham did something terrible either to his father or his mother, depending on the interpretation. And I'll leave it there. So that's an interpretation. And if this is, in fact, the case, of course it is Wickedness on a high level. But I actually don't think this is what the text indicates. I don't think this is what happens. Ham goes out to his brothers and tells them of his father's nakedness as if he wants them to look in on him with, uh, in on Noah with him. But instead of going to look at Noah's shame, Shem and Japheth take a garment and walk backwards and cover him up and don't look on it. And so, at least in my estimation, it seems clear that this, is, this nakedness was not euphemistic. It was, in fact, nakedness. Because they covered physically the nakedness with this garment. Okay, so, so two potential types of sin. One very grotesque, one at the very least... Um, uh, uh, Ham looking at the shame of his father. 
But no matter, no matter the, the relative degree of sin here, what Ham is doing, what he wants, what he desires, is to revel in his father's shame. Not only does he revel in his father's shame, look on it, laugh at it, but he goes to get his brothers and say, hey, come check this out. Let, join with me in this glorying in my, our father's shame. And, you know, as a, as a, as a kid, you know, you know, your parents are these, you know, these stalwart idols, and you think of them as great. And Noah, of course, is declared to be a righteous man. He's somebody who walked with God, who obeyed God. And, you know, maybe as a son, you feel a little less than. I don't know. And here it is. His shame is exposed. Ha! I knew dad wasn't perfect. I knew what he was really like on the inside. Let's go look at dad's shame. Let's laugh and mock and point at this shame. But now, now Noah is exposed. His sin and shame are on display and Ham wants to enjoy the moment. Instead of having compassion on his father, he glories in his shame. And I, I want to stop here and just consider what it means to glory in someone else's shame. It's the tabloids, right? I mean, what, what is a tabloid if it's not glorying in the shame of others? You go and you read a tabloid, and, uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I don't know that I've ever read a tabloid, but they're there in the grocery store, and you see the, the, the title, and it's, and, and, you know, whatever the latest gossip news is on whatever star in Hollywood and their relationships with whomever, and it's all right there on the front page, and it makes you... When you, even when you look at the title, you're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't know. What is, what's going on there? Go Google this. Um, that's what the tabloids are, to expose celebrity shames in order to gawk at them. I think we get the dirtiness of those, those rags, those, those, new, those, um, those tabloids. But I wonder if we don't sometimes delight in the shame of others especially those who are on a pedestal, especially those who are raised up, who have some place of prominence and power, and when they fall, we don't take a certain measure of delight in it. Ha, they're just like us. They're no better. Or maybe it's not the person who's set up on a pedestal. Maybe it's that person that... They just irk us to no end. They're, they're somebody we just don't get along with, we disagree with, we find ourselves in opposite ends of every debate with, and all of a sudden we find out some secret thing that they've done wrong and they've fallen. And we're like, I knew it. I knew it. It explains everything. I knew it. I knew they weren't what they looked like. I delight in someone's downfall. The glory in someone else's shame is often the tinder of gossip, right? It's the tinder of gossip. It sets it aflame. It sets it on fire. It spreads out and it goes. And there is some measure of enjoyment that we get. Did you hear about so-and-so? Can you imagine what they did? Why do we do it? Why? Why do we find ourselves drawn into that 
darkness of looking on other people's sin. What, what is it in us that, that desires to do that? I think part of it is we want to feel like we're better than. I, I can stand up here and look down. Okay? I can look down on them and say, ah, I knew I was better than them. Give us a sense of superiority. I think it's also to take the spotlight off ourselves. Nobody wants that spotlight. Nobody wants that bright light shining into our our souls and seeing our nakedness and shame. And we turn it on somebody else, then we can kind of step back. And, you know, have you ever been in front of a bright light? Everything behind you is in shadow and blackness. You can't see. That's why, you know, in the proverbial, like, interrogation room, they have the bright light and the dark faces of, you know, the people in the shadows asking the difficult questions, glaring into their souls for what they've done wrong. We want to turn the light away from ourselves. I think there's also a sense of wanting to know that we are not alone sinners, right? When we see somebody else's shame, we kind of feel better about our own shame, our own sense of guilt. Well, I'm just like them anyway. We're all a bunch of sinners, And we do this at the expense of others. We glory in other people's shame. Ham gloried in his father's shame. And notice here that it repeats the word, the name. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan. It says it twice in this text. Ham, the father of Canaan. It's a little, remember, there's something that stinks in Denmark. This is to remind us that this sin of his father's was his sin too. He himself was a sinner as he gloried in his father's nakedness, so his own shame was coming to light. His own sin. Ham gloried in his father's shame. But not so Shem and Japheth. Not so Shem and Japheth. This brings me to my, my, my third and final point. There is a mercy in being covered. There is a mercy in our shame being covered. Ham goes to his brothers, and I can imagine the glee. Hey, guys, come and check this out. It's hilarious. You've got to see this. You'll never believe this. And Shem and Japheth, they don't take the bait. Rather, they pick up a garment, and they put it on their shoulders. They don't even... They, they, they recognized right away that what they were looking at was something that was sad, that was tragic, that, was, that wasn't what it should be. And so they take the garment and, and they go and they walk backwards and they don't look on their father's shame and they cover him up. And they cover him up. In the New Testament, there's, a, there's an account in the book of Acts um, Apollos, he was, turned out to be a great preacher of the gospel, he was not one of the apostles, but he sort of followed in their line and he became a preacher. And he was preaching at one point and he wasn't doctrinally accurate. He wasn't preaching the gospel the way it should be preached. And, you know, now you could think if somebody was in the, in the pew and listening, of course they didn't have pews, but however they did it, they were sitting there listening uh, might stand up and be like, 
Oh, look, Apollos, you're so wrong. Let me point out the ten ways that you're wrong. Let's have a debate on it right here in front of everybody. Right? I'm going I'm to prove my theological prowess and prove, Apollos, that you don't have it right. But you know what happens? Two godly saints, Priscilla and Aquila, take Apollos aside. There was some measure of shame, and this wasn't even shame in the sense of direct sin, but it was simply error and understanding, and Apollos didn't understand. And instead of exposing it and pointing it out and showing everybody how Apollos is wrong, they take Apollos aside and they cover his shame by instructing him in the Word, privately, quietly. I wonder, as a church, as a congregation, as people of God, how is it that we deal with other people's shame? How is it that we, when we see a brother caught in sin or a sister caught in sin, how do we come alongside them? Do we point it out? Do we go to our other friends and say, can you believe what so-and-so did the other day? Or do we go to that brother, do we go to that sister and we say, hey, listen, I love you. I care about you. I want you to know that what you're doing is destructive, that what you're doing is is bad for your soul and bad for others. I want you to see in God's Word how He covers you with His, His blood, how He loves you. How do we walk alongside others? I often use this account in Genesis to talk about the way we interact with people, particularly when we're in maybe a heated argument or debate. If you've ever found yourself in a heated argument or debate and the person that you're debating with says things that aren't kind. Have you ever been there? Right? We've all been there. And I always say, you know, we can cover the shame or we can expose it. You have a choice. What would it look like to cover the shame in that heated argument? Would it be like to highlight every wrong thing the person has said right there, maybe in front of everybody else, call them out, point out all the sin that they're doing right there? Or would it be to say, listen, I realize that you're upset. Maybe we could talk about this some more later. Maybe we could find a way to to pray together. What are ways in which we're going to overlook the, the offenses, we're going we're gonna to cover that shame in a way that we can have conversation with the person, that we view them and their shame as covered in the blood of Christ. Which brings me to, to this final thought and idea. How does God himself deal with our shame? How does God deal with it? First of all, I think there are different ways we can deal with shame. We can just shove it under the rug and not let it go. So if you're, let's pull up that argument idea, you're having an argument with somebody, you can just not care about the shame and just let it go. Let that person continue to, to do things and say things that are wrong and, and hurtful and ignore it, kind of move past it, brush it under the rug. The Lord, our God, does not deal with our shame by ignoring it. He doesn't just let it go. But he also doesn't expose it and create this situation where he revels in the shame of the sinner. Rather, he offers a covering. I'm just going to run through Scripture here. Run through God's Word in a very broad way. 
We saw this in Adam, didn't we? In Adam and Eve in the garden, after they were naked and ashamed, they tried to cover themselves, they hid from God, but God calls them out and questions them, and their shame is exposed even more, and their guilt is clear. He not only does that, but He curses them. He points out how their sin is going to have an effect on the world around them, but He does not leave them there. In the midst of that cursing, He gives them the hope of the promised one to come. But even beyond that, after Adam and Eve receive the, 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 the hard news from dust they come and to dust they should return, he does something else. He clothes them. He takes the skins of animals and he covers them. This covering, of course, is a picture looking forward to that reality that would come, but here he clothes them in those animal skins, reminding, him, reminding them that their shame is not forever and their sin is going to be dealt with. Moses, you know, here's a man of God like Noah. He was somebody who walked with God and talked with God. And when he was on the mountain while his people were sinning and their shame was exposed and they built a golden calf and it was clear that, that they should be destroyed, Moses is on the mountain pleading on their behalf and says, Lord, don't wipe them off the face of the earth. Lord, go with them up to the land of promise. Be with your people. And so the Lord promises to go with them. And Moses is so overwhelmed by God's response of grace that he says, can I see your glory? And God says, no one can see me and live. No one can see my face and live. And as Moses says, is wondering, oh no, how can I see God and live? God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you into the cleft of a rock. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to hide you away, and I'm going to walk past you so that you can see my glory, the backside anyway. But I'm going to hide you. I'm going to cover you. Because the big problem, and this goes into the sacrificial system as well, the whole sacrificial system is about covering. It's about blood being sprinkled and being covering over the, the, the altar seat and over the, over the people themselves that they might not face the wrath and curse of God. We read earlier in our passage this beautiful passage from Isaiah uh, chapter 6. Isaiah, I'm sorry, chapter 61, which says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Now, in that same passage of Isaiah 61, right before, right before that uh, beautiful statement about God's covering and clothing, he says, the prophet says this. In verse 7, Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in the land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Instead of shame, 
This is what the Lord provides in His covering. And if we go all the way forward to the New Testament, we have these beautiful statements. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are clothed and covered. In Ephesians, you were taught in Christ, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupted with deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Psalm 32, 1 sums it up. And all these we've already read today. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How does God deal with our shame? He covers it. How does he cover it? Well, he puts his own son up as an offering and ransom. What happens to Jesus on that day when he was delivered up is he is stripped naked. He is beaten and he is whipped. A thorn, a crown of thorns is placed on his head. He is gawked at. He is mocked. He is crucified. So that everyone that looked on him was reveling in his shame. But it wasn't his shame, was it? It wasn't his shame, but it was the shame that we deserve, that Christ took upon himself the guilt of our sin, and the Lord God took upon, put upon Jesus all the wrath that we deserved. Why? So that we might be covered in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ and be declared righteous in his sight, sons of the Most High, justified, forgiven, set free. What does it mean for us? to have our sins covered. It means to be free of shame and guilt. To be declared righteous in the sight of God. So we go back to this idea of how do we, how do we treat one another. When, when sin is exposed, are we offering up to them the mercy of God Reminding them of the wonderful covering that Christ gives to us in himself. That, that there is freedom from guilt and shame. That we are forgiven and set free. That there is nothing that can separate us from God. That the wrath of God is hid from us and put on Christ. And the love of God is shown on us. Do we go to those who are caught in sin with that kind of love? Or do we gawk? Do we make ourselves seem better? Pointing out shame. Friends, let's be like Shem and Japheth who walk backwards towards one another. When someone sins and they're caught, they don't even see their shame. We pull them aside in love. And share with them the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. And help them walk in newness of life. You know, one thing that I've, I've been wrestling with for some time now is as a church, how is it, and I don't mean this, there's no 
it's not a, I think we do this in many ways, so I don't want to take this as a criticism of us as a church. Just, just as I think about life in the church, and I don't mean CCPC, but my life in the church, is how is it that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, can come alongside one another and speak truth and love? Have you ever tried? It's fraught, isn't it? Oftentimes, we just step back. So if someone is caught in sin and we're just like, well, that's their life. I'm just going to step back because I don't want to go there with them. I don't want to seem judgmental. I don't want to seem like I'm holier than thou. So I'm just going to let them live how they want to live. That's not what God does when he covers us in shame. He brings forth the reality that our sin and, and, and guilt deserve the wrath and curse of God. And then he takes that guilt and he puts it on Jesus. And he covers us. So it's not an option for us to just set back and let one another walk in sin. We're called to speak truth in love. And I want us to consider as a church how we do that, how we come alongside one another, encouraging one another, pointing out sometimes where we've sinned, but not in a way that exposes the shame, but one that covers it up and says, I know what it's like to be a sinner. I know what it's like. I'm just like that. I want you to know God's grace and mercy is for you too. Anyway, just, just something to consider. What does it mean for us to speak truth and love and to encourage one another to grow in grace, grow in faith, grow in hope? Well, friends, the good news of the gospel is that we as God's people are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But friend, if you're here this morning and you've yet to know the covering of shame that comes in Jesus, I want you to consider what it would be like to run to him. To take that feeling of guilt and shame and to throw it on Jesus and to say, Lord, give me your free grace. Cover me with your love. Let me know what it means to be set free from that guilt and shame.